A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, history friends. Zach Twomley here. You are listening to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails... And this is the Versailles Anniversary Project. Of course, these things are all probably familiar to you, but if you're just joining us and you've never listened to When Diplomacy Fails before, you might be wondering what the story is. Well, I am Zach Twomley, as I said, and I've been doing this for nearly seven years. And to mark the fact that I've been doing it for nearly seven years, I'm going to do a Q&A. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...episode on our seventh birthday. So on the 18th of May, we'll be releasing a Q&A episode, and I'll be answering all the lovely questions you send in to me, as well as dropping some pretty huge news upon you all, which will definitely affect the future of this show and a lot of other things too. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's very, very exciting. Of course, to send questions my way, you just need to contact me through the usual channels. We have a Twitter, Podcast. Maybe join one of the 1,200 or so followers that are already finding out exactly what happened on this day every single day, because that's what we're doing in our Twitter. Every single day there's a new post telling you what happened on this day, particularly made of years ago. And yeah, they're pretty fun and they're very interesting, so go and check them out. It's a good reason to follow us, but you can also contact me very easily over Twitter. Alternatively, if tweeting is not your thing, check us out on Facebook with our Facebook page or in the Facebook group where I'm always lurking in the background, just waiting to see whatever memes or questions or 
people saying hi might pop up. So go and check us out there too. Just search for When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page or Facebook group in Google or Facebook or what have you, and we will come up. Alternatively, if you want to talk to me directly, email is a great way to go too. WDFpodcast at hotmail.com. Back in the good old days when things were simpler, all I had were these things for you guys to support me. And I told you that the best way to support this podcast was through BFIT. B is for blog, it's in the vassal state. E for emails, I just said. F for Facebook, which I just said. I is for iTunes, which I have not said yet. So go and review us, rate us, and even subscribe on iTunes as well. I believe it's called Apple Podcasts now. I don't actually know, to be quite honest, because I use Podcast Addict. And I recommend that app because it's pretty darn good. I am an Androider through and through, but that does not mean that I underestimate the importance of Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever it's called these days. Because according to my download figures, about 80% of these downloads and listens come from Apple. So there's not much point in me being a big snob about it. In any case, reviewing the show on iTunes lets its algorithm know that you're appreciating it. And I really do love seeing the latest reviews that come out. In line with the fact that I super, super appreciate these reviews, here's a latest review that I read. On the UK iTunes store, hello to SJW030980, whatever your real name is, they gave us a five-star review, saying head and shoulders above the rest, and also saying this is without doubt the best out there. When Diplomacy Fails provides an incredibly detailed, thoroughly researched look at episodes in the past, which rarely get a great deal of attention. It's not just Hitler and the Henrys, although the series on the July Crisis and Versailles certainly cater for those with 20th century interests. The material Zach has created on the 17th century is particularly outstanding. Well, thank you so much, Mr. S or Miss SJW030980. Whatever your real name is, I really appreciate your review. If you'd like your review read out, maybe I should make this a semi-regular thing. But either way, you should know, reviewing us on iTunes is super appreciated and very important. It's nice to know what you think. And it's nice to be able to shout down those people to give us negative reviews. Because who wants freedom of speech when you can make people say what you want? Anyway, (laughs) before we get really weird, let's start this episode. It's a good one, a very interesting one, and one which you've probably never even realised you needed until you actually listen to it. Check it out on Danzig and the Rhine. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 57. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 57 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. In the last episode, we dealt with the Italians, and noted how Orlando's exit from Paris was far from what the Italian premier had wanted. But in the situation, he had felt that he had no choice. With Italy now absent from Paris, or at least nobody taking Orlando's seat in the Council of Four, Matters could go one of two ways. The negotiations could slow down, as the need for Italian approval would delay everything, or they could speed up, as the Italians were removed from the treaty-making process and the other allies surged ahead with their work. 
In the event, the big three chose to do the latter, while still hoping that the Italians would return. The month of April had produced a great deal of conflict among the Allies, be it among the French and Americans, with Japanese over their racial equality proposal, or with the Italians more recently with their plans. Yet it had also been a month of impressive progress. By the end of the month of April, the Germans would be arriving, and the Allies felt confident enough in their progress to invite them. Here we take stock of the situation in the last week of April 1919 by focusing our microscope on two apparently unrelated but hugely important issues, specifically the future of the Rhine and the status of the city of Danzig. These two issues of the Rhineland and Danzig were intrinsically linked with the outbreak of the Second World War, and it's thus important in our narrative to establish where they came from. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to a very contentious issue indeed, the fate of the port of Danzig, also known as Gdansk, which had once been held up as a reputation of Poland's new start in the world, but which had since become useful for Wilson to make a point to the Italians. By the last week of April 1919, two Polands seemed to be emerging. The first Poland was the one represented by the Poles themselves in the Polish Committee in Warsaw, which was staffed with Polish and Allied officials. The second Poland was that imagined by Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George, who would come to view Poland as a potentially dangerous, unstable power which would have to receive support into the future if it was going to survive. We have addressed that oft-parroted assumption which had it that Wilson was a firm advocate for Poland, his 13th point, insisting on lands that were undisputably Polish, being returned to Poland created, as we have seen, far more problems than might be apparent on the surface. Yet it was with the city of Danzig, formerly Gdansk, probably the most important city in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and certainly the most important port city, that Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson became especially concerned. The major reason for this obsession was, first and foremost, because, yeah, Lloyd George was inherently anti-Polish, and this affliction seriously clouded his judgement. It also meant that matters relating to Poland became bones of contention for Lloyd George, who dreaded the prospect of handing land to Poland, which was full of Germans. This, Lloyd George claimed, was the situation in Danzig, where the city was torn between its German and Polish populations. In such a situation, it would be disastrous to hand it to the Polish government because, before long, the minority German population would rise up and cause incredible headaches for the Poles and the peacemakers in Paris alike. Lloyd George advocated this perspective throughout March, but it was only when Woodrow Wilson got behind him later in that month that Danzig's future was confirmed. As to why Wilson changed his position from one of supporting Polish claims to Danzig to supporting the idea of Danzig as a free city, we need look no further than the issue of Fiume. We will recall in the last episode that Fiume, a port city reaching into the Adriatic, had ties to Italian, Serbian, Croatian and even Hungarian ethnicities, reaching back many years. Yet the Italians made it a red-line issue, and Orlando had essentially left the conference on the evening of the 23rd of April because of that city. The 23rd of April might have represented the culmination of that crisis, but before long, from late March, when Italy's claims loomed into view, the President had begun to anticipate that Fiume was going to be a problem. Thus, Wilson was eager to ensure that his bargaining position had no weak points, and he detected one such weakness in Danzig. 
Danzig was a city comprised of many peoples, and in Wilson's mind, its circumstances mirrored those of Fiume in several respects. Several minority parties lived in Danzig, as in Fiume, and one power was resolute in its calls to claim the city, that being Poland. Anticipating Italian difficulties over Fiume, Wilson came to believe that if he were to grant Danzig completely to the Poles, then that act would be held up by the Italians, who later argued for Fiume. What, the Italians could argue, was the difference between handing Danzig to Poland and handing Fiume to Italy? Why was Wilson content to do one and not the other? Rather than find himself caught in this position, Wilson elected to give in to neither party. And he changed his policy towards Danzig from late March. This meant that he now saw eye to eye with Lloyd George over Danzig, but for very different reasons, and it therefore meant that the two leaders would be able to support the other, mostly against French efforts to see Danzig returned to Poland, but also against the Poles themselves. As Klaus Schwabe wrote in his book, Woodrow Wilson, Revolutionary Germany and Peacemaking, The British Prime Minister, backed by Wilson, refused to hear any objections or suggestions which would have given Poland more influence in Danzig. As Lloyd George made clear on the 5th of April, the placement of Danzig under Polish sovereignty in any way at all was unacceptable to him. All that the experts could rescue for Poland, apart from some special economic rights, was that Danzig be represented diplomatically by the Polish government. In the final text of the Treaty of Versailles, no explicit mention was made of sovereignty for Danzig either. There was no debate on the basic assumption that the harbour of Danzig had to be made available for the Poles. So if you were wondering why Danzig was a free city according to the Treaty of Versailles, and why in 1939 Hitler was dealing with the free city of Danzig rather than simply the Polish city of Danzig, then your answer resides here, in the perspectives of Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George. Interestingly, the case of Danzig reminds us how interconnected such issues were, and it demonstrates the consequences which last a generation can come from the most unlikely of sources. Thanks to the status of Fiume, essentially, Woodrow Wilson vowed to make Danzig a free city, and when it later came time to debate the issue of Fiume with the Italians, Wilson would actually use Danzig as an example of what should be done in a situation where cities possessed varied populations. Of course, Danzig's residents were unimpressed at being used as such an example, and the Italians living in Fiume were similarly enraged that Wilson was dense enough to apply such stringent laws to vastly different cases. The two free cities also enjoyed very different fates. Although both were created as free cities per the Treaty of Versailles, Fiume would only exist as a free city until 1924, when it was annexed by Mussolini's Italy as part of an agreement with Belgrade. Danzig, more infamously, served as Hitler's bridge too far in 1939. During April, there was much talk of the League of Nations, and plans were made for applying the reservations and recommendations which had been made since Wilson's return from his American tour. We'll deal with the issue of the League in its own dedicated episode, and we'll also address the other important issue, that of reparations, in an episode in the near future. In this episode, we focused on Danzig and the Polish question, and we will now turn our attention to another contentious but also underrated bone of contention between the Allies, that of the Rhineland, a region which included trouble spots such as the Tsarland and Ruhr, and which the Allied leaders all had very different opinions on. It was the Rhineland, perhaps more than any other issue, which threatened to sour relations between the French and American leaders. Clemenceau could draw on strong reserves of political and military opinion to support him, and within that pool of opinion, 
there existed Marshal Foch, who insisted that the occupation of the Rhineland must be permanent, or André Tardieu, his territorial advisor, who was willing to moderate the occupation terms by setting a time limit. Tardieu would later become the Minister for Liberated Regions, as the posting was called, which essentially meant he was responsible for the reintegration of lands such as Alsace-Lorraine, but also the Rhine and Tsarland. The curious nature of the Rhine Basin and the troubled history between French and Germans meant that the river did not form a natural barrier between the two states. In fact, on the left bank of the Rhine, to the chagrin of the French, German culture and German people were actually in the majority in many places. Living in these lands meant controlling the bridges over the raging river, and this meant that France would forever be at a strategic disadvantage. To change this state of affairs, the French ministers focused in on the Rhine's left bank, because not only was this region strategically important, it also contained vibrant industry, with coal and coking facilities to match. There was an awful lot on the line. If Clemenceau failed to wrest this Rhineland and its contingent parts, which included the Tsar in the south and the Ruhr to the north, away from the Germans, then his premiership would be much maligned by figures loudly critical of his failure to protect France. The matter was complicated somewhat by the Alsace-Lorraine issue, which was unquestionably set to return to France. Alsace-Lorraine, which straddled a part of the Upper Rhine, contained a measure of Germans, but was believed to be French in culture. Wilson was happy to hand over Alsace-Lorraine, and after previous discussions, the idea of a plebiscite in the region was done away with entirely. However, Woodrow Wilson surely could not allow the French to seize this chunk of territory in the Rhineland, where predominantly Germans lived. This violated the self-determination principle, which he supposedly stood for. This was the basis of the impasse between the two figures. So the question is, how did they resolve their differences and leave both parties, if not completely happy, then at least contented enough to move on to another issue? The answer, of course, lay in compromise. When Woodrow Wilson returned to Paris in mid-March 1919, the Rhineland was at the top of the French agenda. House recorded in his diary on the 20th of March that Clemenceau was loudly pleased with Wilson's suggested compromise. It revolved around the idea of demilitarising the Rhineland, of promising Anglo-American aid to France in the event of her being attacked, but also in preserving German sovereignty over the Rhineland area. According to House, Clemenceau responded to his efforts by exclaiming, A monument ought to be erected to you. But if the French Premier had in fact said that, then such indulgent praise was premature. Perhaps because he was wary of relying too heavily on commitments made by Wilson to shore up France when an isolationist undercurrent was taking root then in Congress, or perhaps because the border was not where he wanted it to be on the Rhineland, or perhaps for these reasons and others besides, Clemenceau said that he wanted more. The Rhineland would be demilitarised, but it would also be occupied until the Germans had paid off their reparations bill. This would guarantee compliance with Allied terms and have the dual result of protecting France as well. In addition, the Tsar, the southern chunk of the Rhineland, would be given to France in perpetuity. Wilson absolutely refused to approve of the detaching of the Tsar from Germany though, and Klaus Schwab provides by far the best analysis of this unfolding debate that I have found. Writing on Wilson's personal stance on the Tsar issue, Schwab noted, as Wilson saw things, the debate over the Tsar district was more an issue of principle than most of the other issues disputed in Paris. In the talks which took place from the 28th of March to 13th of April, 
Wilson made perfectly clear to his colleagues why he thought this was so. The historical and strategic arguments which the French offered to support their position at the beginning of the debate were totally unpersuasive for Wilson. Contrary to Clemenceau's claim, the Tsar district was, in his eyes, absolutely German. It constituted a single economic unit, and the fact that parts of it had at one time belonged to France were irrelevant. Indeed, he felt that arguing from historical grounds would lead the conference into unending debates. The only French arguments to which he allowed any validity were economic ones. The Germans, for example, had destroyed the coal mines in northern France, so France had a legitimate claim to adequate compensation. What Wilson was willing to do to alleviate this economic pressure was to give the French the exclusive use of the Tsar mines for a limited period. This exclusive usage idea did not, however, entitle the French to place the German population of the Tsar district under French sovereignty. Wilson noted that he would also not be satisfied with a deal that granted the people of the Tsar a measured level of autonomy on the model of Danzig, for instance, if they did not want this status. The Tsar was German land, Wilson insisted, and for the sake of fairness it had to be handed to Germany, however painful for France this might be. On this latter point, though, Wilson was in disagreement with Lloyd George as well. Lloyd George hovered in and out of the Rhine question throughout March and April, when the question really began to heat up. More often than not, Wilson found himself on the opposite side to Lloyd George, who was willing on several occasions to see things the French way and detach chunks of the Rhine for the French benefit. This meant that Wilson found himself fighting a war on two fronts, a quest which was far from easy, given the additional pressures which April brought with it. Wilson was rarely so driven by his principles as he was in the Rhineland issue, though. In his view, if he yielded to France in the Rhineland, then the result would be not only a renunciation of his principles for the peace, but also a declaration of moral bankruptcy, where only the Bolsheviks would profit. What he feared was, as he put to house, the transformation of wartime enthusiasm into a despair as profoundly cynical as that of Bolshevism when it declares there is no justice in this world, only by violence can injustices committed by violence be avenged. Wilson then went on to say to his former best friend, I do not want to do anything that would allow anyone to say of us, you proclaim grand principles, but you admit exceptions to them whenever your emotions or national interest makes it seem desirable to you to deviate from these rules. Instead, Wilson told Clemenceau, he wanted to break the vicious cycle of injustice followed by retribution in the region and make future reconciliation between France and Germany possible. Wilson recognised, as did many others, that without this Franco-German reconciliation, without creating another Alsace-Lorraine in Franco-German relations, there would be no possibility of a lasting peace. Yet Wilson had another motive for standing firm on the Rhineland issue too, one which tied the issues of Danzig and Fiume together. As Klaus Schwabe noted, Not only principles, but the internal consistency of the peace treaty were at stake for Wilson in this debate. By blocking France's claims for the Tsar Basin, just as he had Poland's for Danzig, he hoped indirectly to deny Italy a legal basis for its expansionist desires on the Adriatic. The solutions found for Danzig and the Tsar were to provide a model for fair reconciliation of opposing interests, and this model would then be used for settling the Italian-Yugoslav border question. Here, too, of course, as in the negotiations on Danzig, the critical question in East-Central Europe 
provided Wilson with persuasive arguments. However, unlike House, he did not yield to a mood of panic which prompted the latter, because of the Bolshevik threat, to reach a peace settlement at any price. To guarantee a firm and just foundation for his later arguments, Wilson knew that he could not afford to make one rule for France and one rule for the Italians or Poles. Wilson was also sensitive to accusations of sponsoring annexations, or of suppressing this ingrained nationality in people that lived in the Tsar region, or of reducing the ability of Germans to pay reparations if an industrial region like the Tsar was seized. It was the Tsar issue above all, and French desires to straight up annex it, that really provoked the rift between Wilson and Clemenceau on the 28th of March. When the French Premier infamously accused the President of having pro-German sympathies before storming out of the meeting. By this point, Wilson had already indicated that he would rather leave the conference altogether than hand the Tsar over. Was this the occasion for that great bust-up between the American and French powers? Well, not quite, because Kammerheads prevailed when Clemenceau returned later that afternoon, and Wilson absolved himself of any German sympathies as well. He wanted, he told Clemenceau, to administer justice, not to take land from Germany which was indisputably hers, since this would only send the world's sympathies to Germany in 1919, in the same way as these sympathies of the world had been sent to France in 1871. Wilson's opposition is especially interesting in this regard, because it was at odds with his advisers and with House. In the beginning of April, Wilson was presented with a proposal from André Tarjou, remember the French territorial advisor, which effectively repeated earlier suggestions for the Tsar. It was to be administered in the same way as the Rhineland by France, in that it would be occupied and cast as a French mandate for 15 years, after which point it would be free to vote to join either France or Germany. The idea was that in that 15-year period, the people of the Rhineland as a whole would effectively change their loyalties to France and would offset a hundred years of Prussification by doing so, Tarju said. Tarju's big concession to Wilson this time was that the citizens of the Tsar could retain their German citizenship, but Tarju undermined this concession in the next breath by making it very clear that these citizens would not be able to choose to return to Germany until the 15-year period was up. Furthermore, the Tsar's coal mines would remain under French control regardless of what state the Tsar chose to join after 15 years. Not until 1935, in other words, would the Tsar's people be permitted to make a free choice, and in the meantime, France would hold the Tsar as a League of Nations mandate, and it could be expected in that time, France would work to change the dispositions of the people of the Tsar, perhaps even with the use of underhanded means, when it came time to vote. It should not be surprising to us that this arrangement was not at all satisfactory to Wilson. Even with the concession his advisers suggested, whereby the plebiscite in 1935 would be supervised by the League of Nations, Wilson found himself angrily rejecting the whole scheme. When it was presented before the Council of Four in the first few days of April, Wilson was at pains to emphasise that he was not in favour of a buffer state appearing in the Tsar, and that the coal mines should not be placed indefinitely under French control, but that they could be handed to the French for the moment. Here Wilson was upholding the ethnic interests of the Germans as well as the economic interests of the French, but by doing so, he pleased no one. On the 3rd of April, Clemenceau indicated that he did not want a situation to emerge where Prussia had political control of the Tsar and Paris had only economic control. 
That evening on the 3rd of April, Wilson fell ill, and it was believed that with Wilson gone, more Francophile heads would prevail, and Clemenceau would get the Tsar as he had hoped. Gone he may have been, but Wilson was not willing to stay silent. He continued to dictate from his sickbed, and on the 5th of April, as we saw, he instructed his presidential ship, the George Washington, to be prepared to take him home. The French papers responded by declaring that France had no intention of annexing any lands, and while Wilson had won this round, Clemenceau was not willing to let it go just yet. First of all, though, the French Premier compromised. On the 8th of April, Clemenceau indicated he would accept League of Nations supervision of the plebiscite which would be held in 1935, whereas before, he had been insistent that France would supervise it as per its mandate status. Wilson responded in kind. On the 9th of April, he instructed his experts to propose an administrative commission which would be responsible to the League of Nations and which would have political authority over the Tsar district. With this proposal, both sides effectively met halfway, and neither France nor Germany would be the political leader in the region. Instead, German sovereignty would be suspended for 15 years. Following this proposal, some real headway over the Tsar was made, where first the experts, then the heads of state, came to an agreement. The only condition which the French still refused to accept was the possible repurchase of the Tsar coal mines by Germany. Clemenceau wanted to hold on to them indefinitely. Wilson could not relinquish that point, though. The crux of the Tsar issue for him was to ensure that the French were economically compensated, but not that Germany lost its mines forever. The Americans negotiating the arrangement proposed a compromise on the question of sovereignty in the Tsar in a bid to move things along. Sovereignty over the Tsar wasn't a particularly big deal in American minds, but because the region was of dubious French loyalty, it was of the utmost importance to France. The compromise reached ensured that the final text of the treaty which dealt with the Tsar would make no mention whatsoever of German sovereignty. This signified that there was no question over who was in control of the region. Governed, though it was, by a supposedly neutral League commission, it would not be in danger of coming under German domination. The French indicated they were willing to accept this compromise, but only after an additional clause was included that would require Germany to supply France with coal at fair prices, and these prices would be set by neutral experts, just in case the Tsar Basin or parts of it reverted to Germany after 1935. By the 13th of April, the agreement over the Tsar had effectively been reached, and, so it seemed, a major hurdle in Franco-American relations had been overcome. Critics of Wilson then and since analysed what has taken place in the first two weeks of April, and cannot help but notice that it seemed as though the President retreated on virtually all of his red lines in a bid to make the French happy. But was this perspective actually fair? Well, Klaus Schwebe provides his analysis on the question, and in the process unpacks the main bone of contention for Wilson when he writes, Despite these concessions on Wilson's part, we cannot conclude, as many of his critics did then and still do today, that Wilson simply surrendered unconditionally to France's demands. His concessions were balanced by other terms in which his point of view was the controlling one. The most important of these was that the Tsar district did not become a French mandate, as the British too hoped that it would, but was put, instead, under an independent governmental commission responsible to the League of Nations. This deprived France of the possibility of using its administration to influence the outcome of the plebiscite, a possibility which was certainly inherent in the Tardieu plan of March 29th. 
Now, after 15 years, the Tsar population would be able to decide, free of outside influences, what its political fate would be. This was what mattered most to Wilson, and this is why he had objected to all of Great Britain's plans for a French mandate. So it was that the Tsarland entered into a period of temporary, quasi-independence. It shouldn't be much of a spoiler to denote that by 1935, when it came time for the plebiscite and for the Tsarlanders to announce their loyalties, Andrei Tarji's original vision for flipping these loyalties over was ignored. The plebiscite, supervised by the League in 1935, guaranteed that the region would return to Hitler's resurgent Germany. A paltry 0.4% actually voted for union with France, and 9% voted for the continuation of the status quo. The following year, in March 1936, German forces called the French bluff by marching into the demilitarised Rhineland and returning it to its pre-1914 status. By that point, of course, Allied troops had left the scene, and only French blustering kept the region out of Berlin's hands. Hitler's successful gamble represented the ultimate defeat of Tardieu's vision, but also Wilson's hope for the future, that by compromising, the Germans would be led to peaceful relations with France rather than hostility. Contrary to all he had hoped for, in fact, Wilson had terminally failed to resolve that cancerous conflict of Frenchman versus German which tore at the heart of Europe. Much like he had done in every other area then, Wilson's moves came too early and hoped for far too much. Though the Tsar was apparently solved, the Rhineland as a whole still had a question mark over its future by April 1919. This question would not be answered until late May, when last-minute solutions regarding the governance of the Rhineland were arrived at. Throughout April and May, though, there was considerable tension between the Anglo-American and French visions of what a new regime in the Rhineland would look like. Marshal Foch had by far the more extreme vision on the Rhineland's future, but because this vision of military occupation, complete with martial law in perpetuity, was predicated on America lending two divisions, it quickly fell through. Foch was even isolated, as we saw from Clemenceau, who attempted to compromise on the Rhineland question in a bid to get at least something from the final treaty. Occupation of the various bridgeheads over the Rhine, and a gradual returning of different portions of the region in five-year intervals, complete with the gradual withdrawal of Allied soldiers in five-year intervals, was what was decided on in the end. Before they reached that point of compromise, though, an incredible scene took place, where rebellious French military personnel attempted to establish a breakaway Rhineland Republic. This incident, taking place in the last two weeks of May, means, yes, we're fast-forwarding our narrative a little bit, but it's important for the sake of this episode because it enabled Wilson to take a firm stand, and Clemenceau got the message. By the first week of June, Clemenceau disowned any French generals who took part in the scheme, and Clemenceau committed to resolving the Rhineland issue by empowering its inter-allied commission, which France was to chair. The terms for the Rhinelanders were similar in scope to that of the Tsar, except that the region would not fall under a League-sponsored commission. Instead, the Rhineland would be occupied, with the occupation authorities very much subordinate to the civilian inter-allied commission that we just mentioned. In five-year intervals, Allied soldiers would leave the three different regions. The Americans left alongside the British in 1930. Throughout that point, though, the Rhineland was to be demilitarised. In other words, there would be no military installations, hardware or industry crafted in that area by the Germans. This was confirmed by the Treaty of Locarno in 1926, 
which declared that, for the sake of reducing tensions and mutual suspicions between Germany and France, once the last occupation forces left in 1935, the Rhineland would remain demilitarized permanently, serving as an unofficial buffer between France and Germany. For a variety of reasons, in 1936, a decade after the Treaty of Locarno had been signed, when very different international pressures were at work, and the tenets of Versailles had more than lost their sheen, Hitler decided that the time was right to invade the Rhineland and forcibly remilitarize it. Unimportant on the surface, though issues like the Rhineland and Danzig might appear in 1919 then, they held a critically important legacy. These were two issues which, in fact, served as the beginning of Hitler's march towards war and then as his official beginning of the Second World War. Throughout the length and breadth of the Paris Peace Conference, it would be impossible to examine every issue, analyse every meeting, and scrutinise every bust-up between the Allies, but in the cases of Danzig and of the Rhine, the Big Three demonstrated first their opposing views, and then their determination to compromise in the name of the bigger picture. That picture being getting a preliminary peace treaty on the table, which could be presented to Germany in good time. Now that the contentious border issues in Poland and the Rhine had been resolved and enshrined in the treaty, it was only reasonable to expect that the end was in sight. On the 13th of April, the same day that a compromise over the Tsar was reached, Germany was invited to send a delegation to Paris to receive the treaty. Two weeks later, though, and there was still a great deal of unfinished business to work out. Before the Allies even came close to welcoming the Germans to Paris, they would have to resolve arguably the most controversial and contentious issue of all time. Reparations. Even the mention of that word today throws up negative connotations and images of blustering, ignorant statesmen in top hats demanding too high a price for peace at the expense of Germany's long-term stability and the viability of the Treaty of Versailles. In fact, for many of you listening right now, the economic questions revolving around reparations might seem like the most important aspect of the Paris Peace Conference, simply because of the destructive impact they had upon Allied relations with Germany in the interwar years, and because of how much capital the Nazis were able to make out of them. In the next episode then, we finally focus our full attentions on the reparations issue. We will examine it all, the myths, the realities, the costs, the concessions, the outrages and the misunderstandings. So if you're feeling brave enough, I hope you'll join me for that in episode 58. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.